Um, the topic tonight on, on your schedule is uh, faith, grace, and prayer. Uh, in thinking about when I made the schedule back in September and I came up with those three words, faith, grace, and prayer, I realized that I just wanted tonight to be one of those days where we'll see where we're at. <laughs> uh, because you can do a lot with those three words. Uh, you could spend countless hours on each word, faith, grace, and prayer. It's really kind of a generic one. Um, but tonight I want to hone in on, on one word that kept coming to mind uh, when I think about faith, grace, and prayer. And it's this word. Okay? Gospel. When most of us hear the word gospel, and you can interact here if you'd like, when most of us hear the word gospel, what do you think? Story. Think of story. Okay? What else? Good news. Good news. Good. Hold on to that call. A lesson. A lesson. Jesus speaking. Messages Jesus speaking. from our Lord. Messages from our Lord. Yeah. When I hear the word gospel, right, I think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The four gospels, right? The four evangelists who wrote um, about the life, the stories of, of Jesus, right? So kind of tying that all in. As many of you know, the four gospels that account for the different parts of Jesus' life, um, those four Gospels, and the whole New Testament for that matter, were written in the Greek language, right? They're written in Greek. So the original Gospels were written in, in Greek. Everything we read is a translation of that. The Greek word for Gospel, I'm going to show off for one second. I took six semesters of Greek in, in seminary. There were all electives, meaning I didn't have to take them, but I'm an overachiever first, so I took them anyway, and I learned like two words after six semesters. <laughs> One of those words I'm sharing with you tonight. Okay? <laughs> Every time, if you looked in the Greek translation of the Gospel of Matthew, the first word, when it says Gospel of Matthew, it would say, so the Gospel of Matthew would say, euangelion. Okay, that's how you would pronounce that in Greek. We get this word from it. Evangelize. You can see, literally, the word evangelize comes from the Greek word for gospel. Okay? So when we say that we want to evangelize people, what we're saying is we want to share the gospel with them. That's all it means. Right? We want to share the gospel with them. The word euangelion in Greek means exactly what was said earlier. It literally means good news. Okay? That word means good news. The, the word gospel is just the English word for the Greek word good news. Okay? Now, at the time of Jesus, a euangelion, a, a, a good news proclamation, wasn't just like a religious thing. Emperors, when they had a message to their empire, or kings to their kingdom, or whatever, they would announce, we have an euangelion, we have a message of good news. So Caesar would make these proclamations to the people of, of, of his region, and he would announce these messages of good news. Okay? With Jesus and with Christianity, what we're saying is that he is the euangelion. He is the good news, right? That, that 
he is the best news, right? So the question I want to begin with this evening is this. Why is the gospel good news? Why is it good news? And you don't have to answer that right now, but just start thinking. Why is the gospel message good news and not just average news? Why is it the best news and not just mediocre news? Salvation. Salvation. Yeah, because of what it promises. Because of what it offers. All right? Good. Now, the reason I wanted to go through all that is because I want to show you part of this this evening. And I'll kind of put in some context here in a moment. Um, there's another Greek word that is kind of a buzzword sometimes. It's called the kerygma. Maybe you've heard of it before. The kerygma just simply means a proclamation of good news. So the kerygma is the basic gospel message. Okay, And there are certain statements we have in the Christian faith that are like, that, that speak the kerygma. The statement we say at Mass, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That, what I just said, is what's called a charismatic statement. It's encapsulating the gospel in like one really pithy way. Okay, That's a proclamation, it's a charismatic statement of the gospel. Here's another charismatic statement. Jesus is Lord. Those three simple words, in a sense, encapsulate almost all of the Gospels. That Jesus is God. Okay? So, what we're going to watch uh, part of this evening, I'll, I'll explain here in a second why we're watching it, is the importance in our lives of being convinced of why the Gospel is good news and why I should want to proclaim the kerygma, why I should want to proclaim the basic Gospel message. Why would I want to try to live that or let my life show that? Okay? So that's, that's kind of the framework. Now, uh, what we're going to watch here, like I said this evening, is, is this priest named Father John Ricardo. And he's going to walk through these four things. Let me say something about Father Ricardo, and then I want to give you some framework for what he's going to talk about this evening and why any of this matters. Uh, I went to seminary, and I said this before, in, in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, Sacred Heart Seminary for my last four years of graduate school. Um, before your last year of theology, before your fourth year of, of graduate school, you're ordained a deacon. So I was back there in Bismarck, ordained a deacon back in 2012. Um, and then you're a deacon for a year, uh, for your last year of seminary. Uh, and so my last year of seminary back in Detroit, we were assigned to a parish for weekend masses. Uh, that way we could go to a parish have to drive there like 45 minutes from the seminary you get to know the people you get to preach once a month you get to do baptisms and you kind of get some preparation for being a priest in, in 12 months all right uh, so there's one priest that I knew of really I had a lot of respect for in, in Michigan named Father John Ricardo he was pastor of this huge parish in, in Plymouth Michigan um, but he never had any seminarians assigned to him no deacons or seminarians were ever assigned to him um, he happened to be a classmate of Father Tom Richter, who was the location director at the time. So I said to Father Richter, I said, hey, I think I know which parish I want to go to. He said, well, which one? I said, Father Ricardo's. He said, well, why? I said, because when I go there for Mass, it seems like the people are really engaged. They know how to pray. They seem on fire. And I want to 
don't you just ask the assignment? I say, because you never had a seminarian assignment. He said, I'll make a few phone calls. And uh, sure enough, I got assigned to Our Lady of Good Counsel as a deacon and got to know Father Ricardo. Um, and he's just a tremendous teacher, and I really have a lot of admiration for him. Um, this talk, this evening, um, the reason I want to show it to you is not because I'm looking for a free pass. It's because when I watch this, there's something inside of me that simply said, I want more people to see this. I want more people to learn from him what I've learned from him, just even in this presentation. Um, he gave it at a conference out in Michigan um, for parish leaders um, and people that are, are working in different parishes throughout the Derrickshire of Detroit. Um, and so what, what we're going to watch, and I'm going to stop every once in a while and make a few comments, is what he's saying is this. In order for me to try to have my life be such that I'm proclaiming the gospel, both by my life, but also maybe my words and, and how I live. In order to do that, we have to be convinced that the gospel message, Jesus is Lord, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, is the best news. Not just for me, but have to be convinced that it's the best news for every human heart. It's the best news. Alright? Um, and he does a great job of walking us through, making sure we understand why the gospel is the best news. And what he starts with is talks about the goodness of creation, sin and fall, God's response, and our response. In order for us to understand how we're supposed to respond to the faith, to what God has done, we have to first understand how God responds. How God responds to what? He responds to sin. And in order to understand sin, we have to understand the goodness of creation and how God created everything good. And that the, the pinnacle of creation is, is actually you and me. That, that we're, the, we're the cream of the crop. We're the best God made. That's not arrogant, but it just means that we're, we're the very best of, of the pinnacle of creation, like I mentioned. So, um, I think you'll enjoy this, and I'll, I'll stop throughout, and uh, if you have any questions along the way, but um, here we go. So I'm going to try to share with you really quickly, and I mean quickly, in about 45 minutes, what takes me normally six weeks. So buckle up. Um, I have become increasingly convinced that if we get this right, not only does the Lord transform our lives, but we have a tool in our hands to use in countless situations. This actually isn't first and foremost for my brother priests. This is for first and foremost for all of us. I share the charisma in almost every single conversation I have with people. It's how I begin every conversation. The way I explain it to people is, so folks will come to us for lots of different reasons and they want to talk about situations and I, I'll often say, before I answer that, can I just I tell you how I see the world? And I mean this in all honesty, inevitably, I can do this in five minutes, I can do it in six weeks, today hopefully we can do it in 45 minutes. When I share this, 
almost every time the response is tears. That's what's supposed to happen. We'll see that that's exactly what Pope John Paul II used to describe the curriculum. So let's begin here, because this is the best place I know how to begin. If I was to show you, we were to reflect on these pictures, and I was to ask you the question, what are they doing there? And I gave you a quiz, you had four options. Option A, they heard that coffee in France was top notch. Nobody circles that, right? Option B, the beaches at Normandy were on their bucket list. No, holding out for something better. Option three, the Louvre is supposed to be spectacular. Option D, well, duh, they're there to fight. Everybody picks that, right? Here's the problem. We look at that and I ask the question, why is he there? And I don't think Catholics have a consistent answer. I want to try to help us understand a way to think about that today. So my hope this morning is that to sh I can share with you what has really transformed my life. I, I love faith and the way faith continues to grow. The last year, I've been ordained 20, what have we got, 23 years this coming May. The last year, I feel like the Lord has taught me more about the charisma than I've ever known in my life. I'll tell you how that happened a little bit later on. So I want to share with you what it is that the Lord's done in my life. And then hopefully, uh, this will be really providential and helpful for us in these days that we're living in. Why? Because this situation that you and I find ourselves in the church in right now is unprecedented. We are living through a Reformation moment. What's happening in the church, in this country, is cataclysmic. And you and I know, because this is what we do all day long with the people that we interact with, people are angry, they are frustrated, they are confused, they feel helpless, they're sad, they're looking for grounding, they don't know where to look. And so hopefully, what we're doing right now gives us a tool to be able to share with people. The Archbishop said recently, in a gathering, if it wasn't clear before, it certainly is now. We have nothing, and I mean nothing, to offer anybody except Jesus and him crucified. That's the gospel. So the goals today are really kind of simple. Not sure why that came up, but we'll get to that in a minute. I love slides. So I want to I want to proclaim the gospel to you. And in doing that, I want to hear it myself. I want to try to equip you with some perhaps new ways to share the gospel. And then hopefully I want to remind us, I, want to, I really want us to leave here today upon reflecting on this and what Archbishop Burns is going to share with us and what the Archbishop is going to share with us at the homily. I want us to leave here with hope. You and I have reasons for hope because of what it is that Jesus has accomplished for us and great confidence in him. So I want to begin here, because this passage is everything for me. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation 
The word he uses there, which we translate into power, that's the Greek word from which we get the word dynamite. In other words, this is not just news. This is explosive news. The best image for me, and I'm going to go back to D-Day over and over again this morning. The best image for me about translating the gospel would be something like this, or sharing the gospel. If you and I lived in France in 1944, and we woke up on June 7th, and the paper was delivered, and we read, hmm, Allies land at Normandy. Cool. Hey, what's the weather going to be? That would not just be news. That would be life-changing news. The gospel is infinitely more so life-changing news. Our people just haven't often heard it that way. So, we're going to talk about the kerygma, and the kerygma is just a, a Greek word that means proclamation. Here's how Pope John Paul II describes it. Archbishop quotes this in his letter. The initial ardent proclamation by which a person is one day overwhelmed and is brought to the decision to entrust himself to Jesus Christ by faith. Just hold on to that word for a minute. Overwhelmed. Ask yourself, have you in fact been overwhelmed by what it is that the Father has accomplished for you through his Son. For those of us who preach, are people overwhelmed by the gospel that we share? For those of us who teach, counsel, comfort, is that the effect on people? The kerygma isn't just things to know. This is the goal. It's supposed to move, it's supposed to break my heart as I reflect upon what it is that God has done. And then it's supposed to drive me out from this place eager to share that with others. Convinced that there is no hope for anyone in anything other than in Jesus. So, oh, here's the goals. Lovely. We already said those. So what's the kerygma? So we know this, hopefully anyway. Um, but I want to just reflect on it real quick. So it's four parts. The goodness of creation, culminating in the human person, made in the image and likeness of God. Sin and its consequences. God's response to sin and our response to what God has done. Perhaps we could simplify this to creation, fall, and redemption. There's a lot of ways to think about this. I really want to zero in our attention on the second and the third parts. I want to talk a little quickly about the first part, but I want to concentrate on the second and the third, because I don't think, I don't think I got this, uh, I know a year ago, I didn't grasp this the way I feel like the Lord has enabled me to grasp it now. And my experience in talking to people and in sharing this is that we often minimize sin and its consequences, in which case we really don't grasp God's response to our sin. And for each of these, 
I was kind of formed in an Ignatian spirituality. And so Ignatius, for those of you who've ever done the exercises, he would always encourage us when we go to pray, because that's the point of the kerygma. I'm going to lay out a set of things for us, but I hope that we'll go back and pray with this. And when we go back and pray with this and reflect on each of these three stages, forget the fourth one, because that's our response. We're supposed to ask God for a specific grace. Like as I meditate upon creation, fill me, Lord, I would suggest with wonder and with trust. As I reflect upon sin and its consequences, give me odd grace. This is going to sound like, but I'm convinced it's the right grace to ask for. Give me the grace of despair. And as I reflect on what it is that you've done in response to sin, give me unshakable confidence. So let's let's look at part one. We'll do this part quick because uh, there's a lot we can do with each of these, but I want to try to hammer home the second and the third parts. So we want to talk about the goodness of creation. The grace we want to ask for here is wonder and entrust, or entrust. So I, I personally think that if you get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right, you get the whole story of salvation right. If you get it wrong, you miss everything. And Genesis causes confusion for a lot of people, especially the first 11 chapters. They don't know how to read it. And uh, a teacher that I had when I was uh, at the JP2 Institute used to always encourage us to understand Genesis is like inspired poetry, which if you're an engineer just makes you go, I don't know what to do with that. Sorry. What does that mean, that it's inspired poetry? It speaks truth, but it's not literally true. The stories of creation are twofold. There's one in Genesis 1, there's one in Genesis 2. They're different. It's like God's trying to tell you, don't read these literally. This is not a science book. It's not trying to tell you how things happen. It's trying to reveal to us why things happened. The, the way I often ask uh, a question to introduce this part of the kerygma would be something like this. Why is there something rather than nothing? And the answer to that is really simple, because there's one God, he's good, and everything he made, he created out of love. He doesn't need anything. And he creates effortlessly. And the highlight of everything that God made is the human person who's made in his image and likeness, let's go back to that, who exists as male and female, absolutely equal in dignity, but very different. That's how God intended it. It's helpful to know, uh, despite perhaps what some of us learned in uh, college, if you ever took comparative religions and whatnot, there is nothing like the stories of creation that are found in Genesis in any other ancient Near Eastern text. There's nothing close all the other stories, all the other myths of creation are hypersexual. And there are many gods, and none of them are any good. They're actually a lot like us. They're at war with each other, they're greedy, they're lustful, they're violent. They make man to be a slave. Man has no dignity, he has no purpose. The woman is utterly inferior, she has one purpose children. And so there's no point to life. And in, in a worldview like that, where we, we came from nowhere, really, we're going nowhere, what rules? What rules is despair? 
And when despair rules, you try to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. That's a lot like our world right now. When the, when the creator is eclipsed, the creature loses his or her dignity. As more and more God is pushed to the side, we don't understand what we're made for, why I'm here, where I'm going, or how to get there. So Genesis is revealing these things to us. Now, we, we know these things, most of us, right? Let me, let me zero in on one passage, which for me has just been really helpful. Especially to help me grow in the sense of wonder and trust as I ponder the goodness of God's creation. So it says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And then it's almost like an afterthought. Oh, yeah, I forgot. He made the stars, too. Forgot to mention that. He made the stars. How many stars? There are roughly a hundred billion stars in our galaxy. There are roughly a hundred billion galaxies in the universe, each with a hundred billion stars. The universe is 46 billion light years across. That's 46 billion times 5.88 trillion miles across. Oh, he made the stars, too. That's right. I forgot to mention that. How big is that? I don't I'm, not, I'm an English major, all right? I don't understand math. How big is that? I heard a guy one time, he said, let me give you an image to understand how big the universe is. He says, picture a sandcastle where every single grain of sand is a star. How big would the castle be? Five miles long, five miles wide, and five miles high. I went out one day and drove that with my head out the window. Looked like an idiot, I'm sure, even more than usual. And just tried to picture, like, oh my gosh, like this is a massive universe. Every single star, a grain of sand. That's one way to think of it. Here's another way to think of it. Here's the Earth. We know this place. Did you ever get that card with this on the front of it? it says, wish you were here. <laughs> so the, the Earth, you can fit 960,000 Earths into this big bowl. That's our sun. That's a small star, the sun. The largest star, at least up until two years ago, is known, so in, in Latin, it's Canis Majoris, it gets translated into the big dog. What a great name for a star, right? So this is the big dog, okay? That's what it looks like up close. That's what it looks like up close. You know how many Earths you can fit inside the big dog? Seven quadrillion. Okay, the English major again. So let me tell you, I don't understand what that number is. So if you started counting now and you ended when you hit a million seconds, how long would it be? 12 days. Count to a million from now, I'll see you in 12 days. Okay. If you start counting from now to a billion, I'll see you in 31 years. You start counting now until a trillion? I'll see you in 31,000 years. 
If you were to count from now until you reach to one quadrillion, I will see you in 31 million years. You can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside that star. Why is that important? Because the one who made that, the one who made the universe that's 46 billion light years across, 46 billion times 5.88 trillion miles across, right now, he, in the midst of this massive universe, his eyes are focused on you. Your life right now is in his hands. So relax. He's got this. He's not nervous. We prayed. Okay, I just want to pause there for a second. I know that's a lot of numbers. Um, but for me, it's really helpful to have that perspective. And uh, he's going to use a line here in a moment uh, that I go back to a lot. Um, whatever perception we have of who God is, is actually nowhere close to who he actually is. Whatever perception we have as to how like, grand or big or powerful God is, it's nowhere close, right, to, to, to what reality is. I mean, if we're saying God made the stars, he just walked through it, and it's, it's a bit overwhelming to think about. Um, and so I think it's really important for us at times uh, in the faith to have a certain level of humility that my perception of God is pretty myopic and pretty small. And God wants to keep on opening that up for us as to who we understand him to be, right? And, and in all that, he cares about us. Not in a general sort of way, but in a very specific sort of way. God who created the universe knows us better than we know ourselves. That, to talk about being overwhelmed, is truly, if we allow it to sink in, overwhelming. It's truly overwhelming. The second thing I was going to pause, just to kind of put this into some context, remember what he started with. If you were to ask uh, June 6, 1944, why are we on the beaches of Normandy, the answer is really simple. They were there to fight. And then you look at a picture of the nativity, and you ask people, why is he here? What's the answer? What he's actually going to eventually show us is that Jesus came to fight. That he didn't just come to love in some flowery way. He didn't just come to, to share stories or to make us feel good. He actually didn't even come just to do miracles. But he came to fight. If we, in order to understand that, we have to understand, well, what did he come to fight for? And who did he come to fight? And that's what we're going to keep watching. All right, so what we're just wrapping up with is this first little part, the goodness of creation uh, and the pinnacle being the human person created in the image and likeness of God. So the reason he lays out these four things this way is he's saying, in order for us to explain the gospel or to understand the gospel, we have to understand the, the framework. 
in order to understand why the good news is the good news, we have to understand what it's up against and what it's a response to, okay? So um, that's what we're gonna keep uh, going with here. Morning, right? And when we pray, we have this image of God in our heads. Whatever the image is, it's wrong. God is massive beyond comprehension. And out of everything he's made, what he loves the most is you. That begs the question, what in the heck happened? If God's good, and everything he made, he made out of love, why is everything so obviously messed up? This is part two. So what in the world happened are sin and its consequences. So my experience is that we don't get this right. I don't think we actually spend enough time on what I would call the bad news. You don't get the bad news when the gospel is just news. But the bad news, people, is horrific. It's worse than your worst nightmare. It should leave us utterly despairing if we really get it. So let's try to rip this apart a little bit more. To understand the bad news, we have to understand the enemy. We want to look at his identity, his reason for rebelling, his strategy, his goal for your life, and then the consequences of sin. So what's his identity? A lot of our people, they live with kind of a Marvel Comics vision of the cosmos. Like there's a good God and a bad God. They're kind of duking it out. Man, I hope the good God wins. Um, there's just one God. He's good. And everything he made is a creature, including Lucifer, who was an angel, who was good. But he rebels. You know the scriptural reason for the rebellion of the enemy? It's not pride. It's envy. Wisdom 2.24 says, Through the envy of the devil, death entered the world. And those who are in his possession experience it. This is essential to get. Who is he envious of? It ain't God. It's us. The enemy sees when he's still an angel, and the other angels do too, God's plan for the human person to be divinized. And this so incenses him. It seems utter, so utterly scandalous to use the words the Archbishop used earlier, that he rebels, and he goes to war. And he goes to war, he, the enemy can't touch God. He knows that, he knows he's a creature. So he goes to war against the creature that God loves the most. Who's that? That's us. So that's his reason for rebelling. What's his strategy? It's really simple. His strategy is to lie. And he especially lies about the identity of God. That was the root temptation back in Genesis 3. 
And as has often been said, Genesis 3 is not just revealing to us what happened at the beginning of the fall of our race. It reveals to us what always happens every time I rebel against God. Genesis 3 is like a it's game film. That's how I tend to think of it from a, a sports imagery. The Lord is giving me game film on what the enemy does. Like he does the same stinking play over and over and over again. Michigan played Wisconsin a couple years ago, and Wisconsin ran the same play like 14 times in a row, and Michigan couldn't stop it. That's what the devil does. He runs this one play over and over and over again. The one play is this. God is not your father. He's your adversary. You can't trust him. He's not good. He's holding out on you. If he really loved you, he'd let you have that. He won't, therefore he's not. And so he tries to deceive us into thinking that we can find happiness apart from God. What's his goal? Really simple. John 10 tells us, Jesus tells us in John 10, the thief has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's his goal for your life. He wants to destroy you. He hates you with a passion you can't imagine. His goal is to be able to mock us for all eternity by having fallen for his deception and chosen against God and suffered forever the pains of hell. That's what he wants. He's not to be trifled with. John Paul used to say, have nothing to do with the dragon. Don't flirt with him. He wants to kill you and worse. What are the consequences of sin? This is especially, I think, where we, we miss it. So oftentimes we say something like this. Well, the, separate, the, the consequence of sin is that we were separated from God. I don't know about you. That doesn't do anything for me. Like, who cares? I'm separated from God. Big whoop. That, that didn't move me in the least when I was in my 20s. Let alone my teens. But the consequences of sin are not just that we're separated from God. The consequences of sin, as, as one author puts it this way, here's what happened as a result of the fall. We, as a race sold ourselves into slavery to powers that we cannot compete against. Primarily two, sin and death, which are both best written with capital letters. We tend to think of sin as something I do or I don't do, something I say or I don't say. That's true by all means, right? But before that, sin is a power. It's a kingdom. It's a dominion. That's why it's written with a capital. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 6. Huh? That we might no longer be enslaved to sin. That's best written with a capital S. Or elsewhere. Death no longer has dominion over him. Lordship over him. These are the words Paul uses. Enslaved, dominion, lordship. With regards to sin and death. 
I think this is actually quite easy to prove. My mom died two months ago yesterday. And my sisters and I were standing at her bedside, watching her go, utterly powerless to stop it. Countless ones of us in this room have had that experience. You're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. You're going into the ground one day. And so am I. That's because of the lordship of death, which is a consequence of sin, the fall. But I think I can say the same thing about sin, at least I know from my own experience, right? Raise your hand. Anybody in here ever done anything that you hated doing, that you didn't want to do, that you knew you shouldn't do, but you did anyway? Like this morning, right? In the car. Like, you ever wonder why? I do not do the good I want. The evil I do not want is what I do. That's man or woman apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we are under the dominion, the power. Here it is again in Romans 3.9. I'm under the power of sin. I can't get out of this. There's nothing I can do to escape from death, and there's nothing I can do on my own to break free from the power of sin. So here's the way I found that the Lord tries to teach me about the consequences of the fall. This is the most powerful modern image I know how to relate to the consequences of the rebellion of Adam and Eve that we've all been born into. You and I are in the hands of a trafficker. This is the most powerful way I know how to pray about this part. For those of us who can close our eyes and see things, I encourage us to try to pray in such a way that you can imagine you have been captured. More slaves today than there have been in the history of the world. You're in the hands of a trafficker. You are chained. And your life is one that is going to be abused, used, humiliated, degraded, and you cannot escape. That's our race. That's the bad news, people. So what does God do in response to that? This would be the good news. Okay, so I just want to pause there. I think all of us at times um, aren't realistic enough with what Father Ricardo is talking about here, namely the, the reality of, of sin, right? Um, and as he's saying, we think of sin and we think of like what I do, what I don't do, and different ways we offend people. But the reality of sin is, and the reality of death is, it's a it's a power, right? It's a real power that eventually needs to be conquered, right? And it, sin came through the fall. It wasn't intended, but it came through the fall. And it's a reality that you don't have to look very far to be willing to acknowledge. But I don't think we're, at least me anyway, I don't think I see sin um, serious enough, right? In, in the world around us, you know, we just think of, we, 
we don't think of it as taking it seriously enough, right? But once again, in order to understand the good news, namely Jesus is Lord, it only makes sense if we first understand the bad news, right? Because the good news is a response. What we're going to see now is God's response to the reality of sin. How did God respond to the power that entered the world through the fall? How does he respond to that? That's the question uh, that needs to be answered. And the grace we want to ask for here is unshakable confidence. So there's way too much to, to talk about here. Let me try to zero in on two things. Zero in on the incarnation and on the passion. So oftentimes I think of uh, Jesus as something like a crystal, meaning every time you turn a crystal, you see a new facet, if you will, as the light shines through, right? A splendid diamond ring or something. And a lot of us, our, our image of Jesus, and a lot of the people that we minister to, their image of Jesus is something like this. Well, he's kind, and he is, praise God. And he's patient, and he is, praise God. Um, and he's gentle, and he is, praise God. And he's loving, and he's forgiving, and he's all those things. But here's the key. He is utterly inconquerable. He's invincible. He's Lord, and we as Americans don't have a way of grasping what that word means. That word is an absolutely revolutionary word when Paul uses it. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. He reigns, this man who was crucified. He's Lord. He's the one who holds history in his hands. He's the only hope for a dying race. So why did Jesus come? What's the purpose of the incarnation? Why is he lying in that crash that we're about to put out soon in our churches? I think we need a biblical answer to this. And the biblical answer is a little clearer than what we often use. John simply puts, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus says, as he's about to enter into his passion. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world. That's how Jesus describes the enemy. The ruler of this world. He is to be cast out. Or most importantly, this passage and its parallel passages in Mark and Luke. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Who is the strong man? Satan. What's his house? This world. What are his goods? You and me. What has Jesus come to do? Bind him. We just sang this, right? He has come to his people and set them free. He would save us from our enemies, who are our enemies. It's not the person who holds the view you don't like. The enemies are sin and death and hell and Satan. From the hands of all who hate us, who hates me, the enemy, who set us free from the hands of our enemies, 
In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness, the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is why he came. Back to D-Day. We know why the Allies landed. They landed to fight. Do we know why Jesus landed? Why the one through whom the universe, which is 46 billion light years across, was made, chose to become flesh. He did not come to tell stories. And he did not come to do miracles. Although he told stories and he did miracles. He came to fight. And he came to fight for you and for me. He came to rescue us from that which we cannot escape from. That's why the gospel's good news. So just like this is the invasion of one kingdom by another kingdom. So the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity is the invasion of the kingdom of death and sin and hell by another kingdom, a stronger kingdom, the kingdom of God. These people came to liberate a continent which was enslaved to a tyrant. God became flesh to liberate the creature which means the most to him. How did he do it? Let's look at that. How does he accomplish this? So let's look at the passion. I am passionate about this book. It's a huge book. I don't know, a thousand pages, something like that. I heard about it roughly a year ago. I bought it at Christmas, put it on a shelf when it came. Said, that looks like good reading for Lent. Pulled it out at Lent and devoured it. I, I turned it over and I went, who in the world is Fleming Rutledge and why have I never heard of this man? So Fleming Rutledge, the author of this book, is a 80-some-year-old retired Anglican woman priestess. Now, some of you know me. If you were to tell me that my favorite book was to be written by an 81-year-old woman priestess, I would have said, probably, I don't think so. I've never read anything like this. This is an extraordinary work. There'd be some points that we would disagree on, to be sure. But she she's like the most, hear this right, the most manly preacher I've ever read. Like, this woman gets it. And she preaches, like, I don't usually hear people preach. And she has perspectives on the passion that will change your life. I'm convinced. It's changed mine. So look at Jesus on the cross. Look behind you. Is he the victim or is he the aggressor? Is he the hunted or is he the hunter? Is this the tragic, unfortunate end of a man's life which was cut down in its prime? Or was this the point? And if it was the point, why was this the point? I would argue Jesus on the cross, even though we use the word victim, and he is to be sure, huh? Jesus is the aggressor. And he's not the hunted, he's hunting. 
just before Holy Week last year, I was uh, praying in the chapel, reflecting on the Passion, and as I'm sitting there, I don't know how God talks to you, he talks to me in funny ways. So I just hear, I hear two words in my head that I've never heard in my life before. And the two words were ambush predator. I don't know what an ambush predator is, so I had my phone with me, I Google ambush predator, and I just start to laugh. So an ambush predator is a creature, they're everywhere, they're in the water, they're in your house, they're in the woods, they're in the desert. Creatures that lie motionless and still, camouflaged with their surroundings, all for the purpose of enticing the prey to come close. So that when the prey gets within reach, they can pounce. Jesus is the ambush predator. God is unbelievably creative. What, what happens in the Passion? From the moment of the Garden of Gethsemane on, God more and more and more and more disguises, camouflages his divinity. He sweats blood. He allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be chained. This is God we're talking about. The one who made the universe. He allows himself to be slapped. He allows himself to be spit on. He allows himself to be stripped naked. He allows himself to be ripped to shreds by scourging. He allows himself to be crowned with thorns. He allows himself to be nailed to a tree. He must allow himself to be nailed to a tree. Where do you get a nail that can nail the, the creator of the universe to a tree from? Where do you buy that nail? The only way he gets there is if he wants to be there. Why would he want to be there? We understand the passion and the atonement of Jesus in three ways. We usually stress two different ways. We usually say things like, Jesus on the cross is showing you much, how much God loves you. That's true, by all means. That moves some people. It doesn't move other people. Or, Jesus on the cross is taking my place. He's He's making atonement for my sins. He's becoming sin, as Paul puts it. That's true, too. That moves fewer people. People look at the crucifix and they go, why did he need to do that? Like, I'm not that bad a guy. I didn't kill anybody. But the third way, those, those are true, but the third way, the classical way, the patristic way, that is to say the way the early church used to most talk about the passion of Jesus and what it is that Jesus accomplishes by his passion, death, and resurrection is to say that Jesus on the cross is going to war. He's fighting. And he's doing it by deceiving the deceiver. See, as the Lord camouflages his divinity, he's trying to pick a fight. Satan won't fight God. He knows he has no chance. And so the early church would often say that it's only fitting that the one who deceived our race at the very beginning should himself be deceived 
and in the process bring about his own destruction. It's as if the enemy stands before the Lord as he's hanging on the cross and says something like this, you know, son, you are rather remarkable. You do extraordinary miracles, but I've seen miracles before. And you don't sin, but that woman over there at the foot of the cross, she don't sin either. And then I picture the devil looking at his watch and saying something like, but you know what? In a matter of minutes, your mind Because no one escapes death. And you're about to die. And that is exactly what Jesus wanted to happen. It's as if he gets swallowed by death. So that from inside of death, he can explode it. St. Ephraim, one of the great early church fathers, said... The Lord goes in search of a chariot with which to ride into the underworld so as to liberate hell. The chariot was his flesh. God can't die, so he takes flesh which can die so as to get into the strong man's house and to plunder it. So I know hearing some of this might uh, seem a bit dramatic or over the top. Um, it's actually very consistent with what the church has always taught about uh, the passion and, and, and the fall and incarnation, all those things. So if, if some of this, some of you, it's like this doesn't sound Catholic. No, it is. Okay. Um, you probably never thought that you'd come tonight and hear Jesus described as an ambush predator. You probably didn't even know what an ambush predator was. I didn't until I saw this here uh, about a year ago. But he is. And so. In order for that to make sense in our lives, for us, we have to go back to number two here, when we talked about, when he talked about uh, the main tactic of the enemy, the main tactic of the enemy is to lie to you and to lie to me. So if he wants to come in and say, right, you're no good, you're a lousy prayer, you're a lousy mom, a lousy dad. Lousy grandma, lousy husband, lousy priest. Okay? If you hear that, that is the power of the enemy. That is not the voice of Jesus. Jesus doesn't talk like that. We do, the enemy does, Jesus doesn't. Okay? And so, um, I, I think the power of the enemy, and I, 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 it's hard to even talk about, like, this uh, Sunday Mass because I feel like a lunatic sometimes, like, Father, you've lost it, you know? I don't, I don't think enough people really believe in the power of the enemy, right? But if, if what I'm just saying to you rings true in some way or another, then you've tasted the power of the enemy, right? And here's the good news. Jesus came to crush that, literally. He came to destroy that and say, no, that's not true. Because remember, I made the universe. I made all of creation. And my biggest concern is you. Uh, so we just have to kind of keep those things in, in, in perspective. Um, we ended here with, with God's response. God's response is, him becoming man, 
him blending in to entice the man enemy to crush him. Right? That's what the crucifixion was. God destroying the power of the enemy for eternity. Right? And he did so by enticing him and crushing him. So, what's our response? Our response can be summed up in one word. Faith. Exercising faith. Exercising faith in the ambush predator, Jesus. So our response is faith. One of the best definitions of faith I've heard is this. God's work in me to which I respond. Let me say that again. Faith is God's work taking place in me that I respond to. Right? So, what is what does God's work in me? He came to save us, as Al said. Salvation. What is God's work in me? To make me holy and to, and to crush all these lies. That's God's work. We have to understand that God's working in our souls and our lives and our hearts. And what faith is, is our response to the work of God. Okay? So, when we live the faith, when we practice the faith, what we're doing is we're responding to what God has done for us. And if we're fully aware of everything God has done for us, what should the response be? Like, really, let me say that again. If we're fully aware of what God has done for me, both in this life, but also in the promise of salvation to come, if we're fully aware of what God has done for me, then in some ways, whatever our response is, is always going to be slightly and not so adequate. So what's our response? <coughs> our entire lives. That's it. What's our response? Us. Jesus, you've done all this for me. Here I am. Everything I have, have is yours. And so our response, um, that is, is, uh, is laying on our lives for our friends. Um, so just to kind of keep those things in mind. Alright, so I know it was a bit scattered, but once again, it's so important to be able to understand <coughs> some level of framework to, be ex to, to explain why, why Jesus, what his death, his resurrection, is good news. Uh, we needed it to happen to destroy uh, essentially the bad news.